Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Shruti Dixit, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Anustav Basu about his book, 2020, about his book Hindutva as Political Monotheism, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Professor Basu is a professor in English, Media, Cinema Studies, and Criticism at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Apart from his book, Hindutva as Political Monotheism, he is also the author of Bollywood in the Age of New Media, The Geo-Televisual Aesthetic, and the co-author of volumes Intermedia in South Asia, The Fourth Screen, and Figurations in Indian Film. Interestingly, he is also a film producer and made the Bengali feature Herbert, 2005, which won the Indian National Award for the Best Regional Film. Professor Basu, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Shruti. It's a pleasure. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, uh, I was uh, born and raised in North Bengal, uh, you know, in the small town of Shiliguri. It's about 80, 80 miles from Darjeeling. And uh, I spent my school years there and then uh, went to Calcutta, Jadapur University for my uh, college and university master's. And then moved to uh, the United States to do a PhD in, at, at the University of Pittsburgh. And I have been at, uh, a, you know, a professor at the uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, since 2005. Uh, so it has been a journey. But uh, I go back to India almost uh, every year. and. Uh, no matter what I uh, write on uh, in terms of, uh, you know, immediate topics, uh, I think I'm basically a student of uh, this very complicated and many-armed project called Indian Modernity. So uh, that is, uh, in a, you know, in a sense, uh, uh, my first book was uh, sort of led up to my uh, second book uh, because in both both these uh, projects I was trying to understand um, a certain shift in the Indian cultural and political imagination that uh, came into being in the early 90s with liberalization with the media explosion and uh, the the political rise of the Hindu right. And that is what I have been trying to look at uh, in my books and essays uh, from various perspectives. So in a sense, uh, I belong to that particular generation that, uh, you know, saw, uh, well, that sort of, I, I was in my early 20s when Babri Masjid happened. And... Uh, then I also belong to that generation that saw the explosion of uh, Indian media in the, you know, roughly from the mid-90s onwards. Uh, we who had grown up with two uh, Durdashan channels, uh, two television channels on state TV, uh, we were suddenly sort of inundated with uh, images and, you know, vistas from across the world. And uh, I have tried to sort of understand uh, that that moment uh, as best as I can. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Basu. That is indeed a journey. I guess the book Hindutva's Political Monotheism comes from experience. So just a quick question. How did you come to write the phenomenal book Hindutva as a Political Monotheism? 
Well, uh, I was, um, I had written a few, you know, uh, standalone essays that have been published over the years. And uh, then I started thinking uh, about this particular moment uh, that we are inhabiting. Uh, You know, many are calling it uh, Hindutva 2.0. That is uh, a Hindutva that that has a very profound electronic dimension to it, you know, that comes uh, of age in the age of Twitter or Facebook or uh, very rapid uh, transmission of words and images across the world. And uh, so that is where I started thinking. And then, uh, in a sense, the project sort of worked itself Backwards. That is, I, I kept going back to the history and the uh, the origin points of not just uh, you know nationalist projects, but also ideas, uh, ideas, uh, attitudes, uh, mythologies, etc. And that is uh, how it happened. Um, I was actually working on uh, an entirely different book. Uh, and I interrupted that to write this one. That, that's interesting. Uh, and, uh, go so ahead. In, yeah, in chapter one, named Questions Concerning the Hindu Political, you talk about the Orientalist roots of Hindutva as an ideology by drawing connections between Carl Schmitt's idea of political theology and Hindu nationalism. Uh, can you elaborate it for the, prof- uh, for the audience, Professor? Yes. So uh, I believe that, you know, contrary to what uh, uh, Hindu nationalists say, uh, the the project of Hindu nationalism is uh, essentially an Orientalist, uh, imitative and, uh, you know, Eurocentric one. Uh, Well, we can begin with the idea of uh, nationhood. Now, uh, you know, nations can be imagined from many angles. You know, you have a common memory of migration, for instance, a common memory of withstanding some sort of natural or political disaster, common memory of fighting uh, colonialism, and uh, you know, so on and so forth. So nations can be imagined uh, in various ways, and India has been imagined uh, uh, in in various ways, um, but if one has to uh, propose um, a religious nationhood or something that, in effect, uh, even if you call it cultural nationalism, it, it in effect comes with a, a very strong uh, religiosity of purpose, uh, then. Uh, there is something that needs to be taken into account because you know the, the model uh, the model of the of the nation and uh, religious nation is uh, essentially not uh, indian in 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 a, in a in a larger sense it it is something it's an idea imported from europe although you know people are uh, trying in various ways to contest that uh, but if the nation has to be a religious nation, then if we look at uh, the the history of uh, political thinking in mon- uh, in modern Europe, uh, you know, over the last few centuries, then there is one consistent condition that is built into that. That is, if you want to have a religious nation, the nation, the religion itself, has to be a monotheism. That is a kind of a faith that is cast uh, in Abrahamic terms, right? It's pretty consistent, and I show that in the book. It's pretty consistent in Hobbes, in Rousseau, in Locke, uh, in James Mill, uh, in in John Stuart Mill, and any other figure uh, that you can think of. That is, there is an implicit understanding that uh, at the end of the day, 
uh, Germany has to be Protestant Germany. Uh, and, you know, it's as per natural course of events, uh, England has to be Anglican England or uh, Spain has to be Catholic Spain. Right. So uh, and when we talk about nations, uh, the nation form, the nation model, it comes out, uh, you know, uh, out of the European experience, you know, roughly from, let's say, the peace of Westphalia. 1648, it comes out of uh, a moment when, uh, you know, just prior to that, all these uh, European uh, constituencies had a spate of religious wars, the mid-millennial religious wars, right? So uh, that is the experience, historical experience, from which um, the nation formed and its uh, particularities, its overt and covert demands, uh, all these things uh, come. Now, the reason I uh, use Schmidt is because Schmidt, uh, you know, as people will know, Karl Schmidt was a Nazi jurist, uh, a Catholic, interestingly, Nazi jurist who... uh, wrote, uh, uh, you know, uh, highly conservative, uh, but uh, extremely brilliant thinker, who uh, wrote on political theology uh, in the in the 1920s. Um, and w- what I found interesting is that what he's uh, what he said was that a nation is. Uh, and he uses the term political. Uh, that is the idea of the political that creates the nation as well as the sovereignty principle of the nation. That is the principle on which the nation fixes its identity as well as, as its sovereign claim. What Schmidt says is that uh, this idea is built on a friend-enemy relation. That is a fundamental friend-enemy self-author relation. And that relation is defined by political jealousy. That is, uh, in other words, um, at the end of the day, the nation has to ask itself, who are the real people? That is, real people defined in terms of a monotheistic flock, a congregation, a brotherhood, and who are, who might be residents, and who are the others who might be residents of the nation state, but do not belong to that core brotherhood, right? That is, would be the minorities, uh, the Jews or the Anabaptists, etc. And so what Schmidt says is that that is the essential, you know, uh, the essential uh, basis of uh, national identity because uh, you have to ask yourself who are the people amongst us who can be trusted uh, to perform what he calls secular martyrdom. That is, who are the people who can be trusted to lay down their lives for the nation uh, without any consideration for their own salvation, right? So that is the the transfer from the uh, theological to the secular. So in other words, to, you know, just uh, put it very uh, succinctly, uh, what I mean, this is how Schmidt will look at uh, the historical formations of Europe. That is, Anglican England, where you can't trust the Catholics, or Catholic Spain, where you can trust only the Catholics, or, uh, you know, Protestant Germany, right? Uh, So, in other words, um, uh, there is a final analysis question that... uh, uh, at the end of the day, the day what uh, theophilosophical 
determination can you come forward with uh, when it comes to the nation? Now, again, uh, I should remind uh, ourselves that this doesn't mean that this is the only way one can imagine a nation. Uh, nations can be imagined, imagined in various ways. But the reason why this is pertinent is that that is what I feel uh, the Hindutva movement has been trying to do for the, you know, roughly for about a hundred years. But even before that, there was a certain trajectory of uh, the Indian modernity experience that headed in the direction, that direction. And that direction was to recast Hinduism, which is, uh, you know, which, which is a gargantuan, um, you know, extremely complex uh, assemblage of a million different kinds of pieties. The project has been to uh, invent Hinduism uh, as a political monotheism. That is, to give to the Hindu experience certain Western structures that it never had, like a holy book, like a you know, a common code of laws, like uh, a universal church, a universal church in order to create a homogenous Hindu brotherhood, a congregation, which can, as per the European experience, be transformed into a political fraternity. Right? So that has been the project. But once you say that, uh, you can understand the various problems inherent in the project. Now, Carl Schmidt was writing in a Europe where nation states have, a lot of them have been uh, created on the basis of, you know, one language, one culture, one denomination, etc. Right? Uh, and, and we have that model from uh, Herder and the German idealists, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, romanticists onwards. But again, so the problem is, uh, how can you transplant that model uh, in an India where there are so many languages and so many cultures? How can you imagined, uh, imagine a unified Hindu identity uh, a congregational identity uh, without addressing the caste system. That is, how can the Hindus be a congregation in a classical sense when, uh, according to traditional strictures, they can't even sit together at a place uh, you know, without vi- violating caste rules. So this has been the, uh, the, uh, the Hindutva project that is, you know, uh, imposing this model, whether consciously or unconsciously, um, and simultaneously trying to address uh, a very uh, you know, formidable Indian plurality, plurality of worship, of cultural modes, customs, language, etc., Right, and we see these uh, these uh, points of tension all the time. Uh, you know, lately, for instance, uh, there was uh, this debate about uh, vegetarianism. There's this; uh, it's it's an ongoing debate. Uh, the problem is, uh, unlike let's say the Abrahamic model, where you can define uh, you know a true faithful, here it's very difficult to say that Hindus are not, uh, you know, ideal Hindus are vegetarians. The point is about only about barely 30% of Hindus are vegetarians, right? And so on and so forth. Um, But um, so that is what the Hindu right has been traditionally trying to do. It created the uh, Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the VHP, as that kind of a uh, model that would supply a unitary church to the Hindu experience. Uh, it wants to encourage Hind- uh, Hindus to sort of take up uh, Hindi as the uh, unifying language, which obviously you know uh, not all people are in agreement with. 
uh, it has it 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 sort of dilly dallies with the question of caste. That is, it uh, finds it difficult to um, address caste as a theological as a traditional. Uh, institution, but at the same time, he would like to. It would like to, uh, you know, uh, ins- institute um, uh, a kind of a common identity through uh, through institu- institutions like the RSS, where you have common uniforms and common eating a- areas, uh, presumably for all castes. Right. So these these are the points of tension uh, in the in the project of political monotheism that I try to address in the book. Thank you, Professor Basu. Uh, Hinduism are indeed many and not one. And on that line of thought, in Chapter 2, The Hindu Nation as Organism, you talk at length about the complications that accompany the Hindutva insistence on original Varna system. Can you just say a few words on the same? Um. So there, you know, uh, there has always been this debate, uh, and the most famous one uh, of the twentieth century would be the one between Gandhi slash Radha Krishnan and Ambedkar, right? Um, that is, you know, uh, the the debate that uh, there was this original Varna system, and it has been described in various ways. Right as uh, scientific management of labor, as uh, division of labor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was this ideal Varna system that was um, uh, perverted, uh, particularly uh, uh, once you know Islam uh, arrived in India. And uh, it sort of dissipated into um, like thousands of jatis, which are these, uh, you know, historically contingent hybrid formations. So the Varna system was apparently pure and a perfect working principle, and there was nothing wrong with that. It has also been argued that it wasn't hereditary. So, you know, each person was... um, Given equal opportunities, and but uh, you know, if you were if you showed talents as a warrior, they made you a kshatriya. If you uh, had intellectual talents, you became a Brahmin, and so on, so uh, so on, so forth. Uh, but uh, I show through my, uh, but you know, obviously, historians have pointed out that it can be argued that. The, the jati system actually precedes Varna. And uh, Varna is an ideal, uh, you know, idealized system, which probably in its pure form never existed anywhere. Right? And that is what I try to demonstrate um, uh, in my reading of, uh, especially the Manusriti. Uh, which, you know, talks about uh, Varna. Uh, but, and it has, it, you know, uh, in, in Manusruti, what you, what you see is an ideal Vedic village. And I use the term uh, village advisedly because there is also, a, you know, a kind of an undercurrent of uh, dislike about um, Big urbanization, right? And and you know we can we can come to that later. So Manusriti, which was written in a period when uh, you know uh, there were various uh, ruling formations in North India, uh, some very strongly Buddhist, some very strongly Jain, some sort of uh, Brahmin, like the Sunga dynasty. So it was written in a period of relative turmoil, right? And the scenario that it proposes, the order, the social order that it proposes is an idealized one. It, uh, you know, it's very difficult to create a modern society out of that. And that was my basic point because it has been a, a consistent 
argument, uh, especially in relation to the Indian constitution. Uh, it's been a consistent argument uh, from this, uh, from certain sections of the Hindu rights that the ideal Hindu, uh, you know, uh, essential, uh, the, the, the essential Hindu existence uh, is as, should be as per uh, the social order described in the uh, Manusriti. But uh, what I try to point out in the book is that that Varna system, uh, again, you know, noting that it, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of uh, it doesn't exist in a pure form anywhere, even in Manusriti, right? Uh, Manu cites about, uh, I think, 15 um, uh, jatis that result uh, auto- almost automatically due to, um, you know, uh, sexual commerce between the four major varnas. Uh, so the, the, the social question becomes, so what what do we do with these uh, mixed caste, uh, mixed caste people? And there is a, you know, catalog, catalog of rules for them. But what is interesting in almost, uh, you know, in, uh, in all this is that you cannot imagine a territorial continuum that covers the entire society. It is always a society that is, you know, uh, it's an apartheid society in the sense it's always a society that's made of boundaries inside, outside. This is where you can go. This is where you cannot go. That, that is where you can stay, that is where you cannot stay, and, and so on and so forth. In other words, there are some castes who can stay only in the marketplace, let's say. There are some castes who can just pass through the Vedic village without being able to live there. And then finally, there are other castes who just simply cannot enter the Vedic village. So the question is, how can you build a national society on those principles? Right when when that uh, uh, that village actually doesn't want to be anything bigger than that, it needs an outside. It needs an outside where people can be exiled, or where people can be ostracized. So, how can you transplant that into uh, a modern nation state uh, space where uh, you know where everyone has to be included, at least territorially speaking? Right, so that is what I found interesting about uh, this uh, Varna imagination. That there was, you know, this there was a pristine moment somewhere where uh, everything worked, and then you know it got corrupted. It uh, it did not uh, work uh, anymore, and it uh, and it sort of uh, bred complications, historical complications that uh, need to be addressed. But what I'm, you know, what I try to show is that no matter how far you go back, you can't come up with a social principle of, of, uh, of uh, uh, Varna that is not exclusivist, or to put it differently, that is not, uh, you know, um, uh, that does not discriminate uh, and ostracize uh, people, right? So, if you ask uh, Monu, for instance, at uh, at one point, what he says is that w- he virtually admits that what he is proposing can be is possible only in regions where Brahmins have hegemony and uh, you know are, are numerically significant and he expressly advises all Vedantins not to live in areas dominated by Shudras right so there is always an interior exterior inside outside distinction working in that text so this uh, I look at that I look at uh, Bhagavad Gita some uh, and uh, try to uh, understand this question about uh, this, you know, so-called tension between an ideal varna and a, you know, and a sad but 
uh, historically, uh, you know, uh, forced uh, dissipation of the Hindu polity, as they put it, into like literally thousands of jatis. Addressing the caste question was indeed an important one in the book, uh, Hindutva as a Political Monotheism, Professor. So, based on the third chapter titled The Indian Monotheism, would you like to explain your perspective of the present day Hindutva battle against Mahatma Gandhi? Right. Um, again, um, so in the in the third chapter, I look at uh, not you know I, I don't look specifically at Hindutva, but I look at uh, a certain trajectory of um, Indian modernity itself and uh, the emergence, the nineteenth century emergence of um, a Hindu identity. Right. So, roughly speaking, this is something almost uh, nowadays everyone knows that uh, the Hindu used to be largely a geographical identity. That is, anyone who lived uh, east of the river Indus. Right. Uh, and uh, you can, you know, from there you can basically come to a moment in uh, 1911 where like two lakh uh, Muslims in uh, the state of Gujarat uh, registered themselves as Mohammedan Hindus in the in the census, right? So it 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 had a very long uh, career as primarily a national a, a geographical identity, uh, and insofar as Hinduism is concerned, it is you know I think even. Uh, Hindu nationalists uh, would readily agree that um, it is a Western concept and it's uh, reliant on uh, um, a certain, you know, uh, religious anthropological definition of religion, right? Religion as a as a particular European context that uh, tries to uh, define faith customs and cosmologies, etc. Right? So, Hindu uh, right people would readily agree that uh, the term Hinduism is a, is a new one, and they prefer Sanatan Dharma, etc., and uh, you know, a few others. So, Hinduism never existed. Uh, I, I, you know, probably the most significant, uh, f- uh, the first most uh, significant public use uh, of the word was by Raja Ramon Roy in uh, 1816. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, I mean, I haven't found anything significant prior to that. It was probably used by some uh, priests uh, in the journals in the 1790s, but nothing significant. So, uh, this is how we started. Uh, you know, um, the Warren Hastings administration uh, wanted to define a denomination using, you know, uh, uh, a Western model of reckoning. So, you know, the Hindus needed a holy book, uh, and the book has, you know, had to be a good one. So that is how, in you know, it came into being, primarily from uh, Charles Wilkins's 1718 translation, that uh, they identified. Oh, let's make Bhagavad Gita. The, uh, the holy book, the Hindu Bible. Or earlier, it was decided that uh, uh, Manusriti should be the Hindu code of laws. I mean, they didn't even use the word Hindu. It was called Gentu uh, in those times, uh, around uh, 1772. Uh, Gentu coming from the Portuguese Gentio, or pagan, right? So, uh, uh, now... I mean, if we think about this, uh, this these two moments, right? Um, uh, Bhagavad Gita be, uh, being made the Hindu Bible. I can well, you know, tra- traditionally speaking, I, I think Vaishnavas uh, would be very happy with that, but maybe not so much the the, the Shaivites, right? Or if you think of uh, Manu as this, you know, 
single code of uh, Hindu law as opposed to about, I think, a dozen other uh, Dharma Shastras that were available. What it does is also uh, destroy an immense tradition of local laws, customs, and jurisprudence, right? So that is how uh, it all began, that we needed a Hinduism and it had to be an axiomatic Hinduism. That is, one, a Hinduism that can sort of engulf all the immense varieties of faith experience, right? Something we can call uh, monistic, uh, polytheistic, henotheistic, that's another term, animist, uh, etc. Nature worshipping and atheists, lokayats, right? So all these people have to be called Hindu in a political sense uh, and cultural sense. Uh, and th- that's, uh, that's an impulse that began you know, in the latter half of the uh, 18th century and carried on uh, throughout the uh, 19th century. I mean, and if we look at uh, orders like uh, the Brahmo Shamads, or which was Brahmo Shamad was called the Unitary Church of Hinduism, uh, Unitary Church of uh, uh, the Vedantic order, uh, or later the Arya Samaj. All of these uh, institutions, the Prathana Sabha, etc., were trying to invent a Hindu congregation. And what the RSS and the Sankhbarivar did from the roughly from the second decade of the 20th century is to give it a political dimension and <coughs> uh, collect. Uh, what you know, uh, what has been called, you know, uh, uh, collect and cultivate um, political, what I'm calling political jealousy, right? Now, where uh, does Gandhi come in? Gandhi's problem, uh, I mean, the Sangparivar's problem with Gandhi is that he, you know, Gandhi was. Uh, uh, someone who um, who spoke a language that was highly Hindu, right? But at the same time, uh, with very secret cosmopolitan deliberations, right? So when he talked about uh, Ram Raj, for him it was the same as Khudai Raj, right? Or the Order of Jesus, etc., uh, etc. Et so, so for the Hindu right, the problem was that, uh, you know, Gandhi had captured the political imagination uh, of, the, of, of the country. He's the person who took, took nationalism to the, to the interiors and villages, right? Prior to him, the Congress was basically a high, you know, high-class debating society almost, right? So, but... At the same time, this, uh, you know, titanic uh, paternalistic figure who was inventing uh, uh, what you would call a political congregation, uh, you know, a political mass, this figure refused to uh, cultivate what, you know, what, uh, what can be called political jealousy in that mass. That is, he refused to uh, divide that mass into categorically Hindu, categorically Muslim populations uh, at war with each other, both impelled with political jealousy. So, you know, that is where uh, Gandhi's uh, very looming presence and his... um, you know his ahimsa disturbs the the agenda, the purpose of uh, inculcating political jealousy, on which uh, you know uh, sort of fundamentalist Hindu nationalism is based. Right, he is a father who uh, 
who has been for that very reason who uh, who has been called uh, someone who is you know pacific androgynous there's a lot of interest in you know gandhi's uh, uh, you know sexuality uh, as well as uh, someone who is uh, who who disrupts the emergence of uh, an aggressive hindu masculinity with his uh, you know with his ahimsa so that 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 was and gandhi of course was a very complicated figure uh, and on the other hand you had uh, the well gandhi's debates with ambedkar which uh, you know which also features in the book uh, where uh, you know uh, the kind of paternalism uh traditionalist paternalism anti-industrial anti-modern paternalism that gandhi uh sort of um preached uh uh was uh, you know uh as as ambedkar repeatedly point out, pointed out uh couldn't address uh the, the main you know the many caste atrocities that uh, that defined and still continue to define Indian uh, social life. But uh, just to uh, come back to the you know Gandhi Sangh Parivar uh, tension, uh, I think the point is actually pretty simple. If there is uh, you know uh, a Hindu. Uh, imagination of polity and political language. Uh, you know, Gandhi owns that. And that is where uh, it becomes a fight with the Hindu right. That is, uh, you know, and that's what they keep trying to do, to emulate the grand, uh, you know, uh, symbolic gestures that, that, uh, that mark uh, Gandhi's most famous mass movements, right? Uh, so, in other words, they are—they uh, have to disavow Gandhi, but at the same time, not you know, not very overtly, and they have to keep borrowing and uh, sort of trying to transform his uh, uh, his political language and his symbolism. You know, begins with Charka, Swaj Bharat, Avijan, etc., etc., etc. That was really helpful, Professor Basu. So, the last chapter extensively elucidates Hindutva 2.0. So, I would like to ask you, what is Hindutva 2.0 and how can it be perceived as advertised monotheism? which does not depend on the institutional paraphernalia of modernity or the traditional orders, but grows and persists from the advertised. Right. So, you know, this book is largely, uh, uh, you know, an exploration of these, these, um, uh, these impasses, these uh, these moments of crisis in the Hindutva discourse. So it 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 uh, it you know it comes into being the period you know political uh, scientists like uh, Benedict Anderson have called uh, their era of print capitalism. That is you know an an ideology that tries to establish itself uh, through the print media. Uh, the modern public sphere, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but uh, also in contention with the modern, what they call, what Michel Foucault would call the modern d- disciplines uh, and the physical sciences. That is, in other words, to put it very simply, um, that you always had to contend with modern secular disciplines in order to say something. Right, uh, so in order to propagate uh, a certain myth, you had to fight with history, with archaeology, with uh, you know I don't know it could be chemistry or physics or you know and things like that. 
in order to uh, say something um, that is champion something uh, that is of customary belief, you had to, let's say, fight with medical science, right? So all these were there and, you know, you can trace it back to the Calcutta uh, and Pune revivalists of the uh, of the uh, late uh, late nineteenth century, right? So and and they continue even today, right? Uh, and what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that if if you say that uh, you know cow urine, gomutra cures cancer, that is uh, the 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 order of modernity is that uh, you can't say it in isolation. You have to engage with existent medical discourse in order to prove that it is right right or if you say something about the past that this is this happened uh you know in the past in the glorious past you have to engage with uh history and archaeologists so you know like roughly about 15 uh Years ago, Murli Manohar Joshi said, uh, the BJP, then BJP minister, said that uh, we have found the ancient city of Dwarka, uh, you know, uh, uh, off the coast of Gujarat, right? Now, that is, that was immediately challenged by marine scientists, marine, uh, marine, marine archaeologists, right? So, and that is where uh, the uh, the Sang Parivar uh, have always uh, faced problems. And, uh, you know, nowadays what we see in the, in the newspapers is that, um, you know, we see a lot of uh, such statements that are made, uh, that there, there was internet during uh, uh, the time of Mahabharata. Or there was, uh, you know, uh, cow horns can absorb radiation. Uh, so, you know, that can, you know, cure cancer or and, and, and a lot of things like that. But that is nothing new. It was there all the time. I mean, um, it was the late 19th century. It was suggested that the, uh, the avatars of Vishnu, right, uh, if you put them uh, in correct order, it actually uh, anticipates Darwin. So Darwin wasn't the first uh, one to uh, talk about evolution. Uh, Ancient Hindus did that a long time ago, and so on and so forth. There was a track about, you know, uh, uh, the story of Agastha uh, drinking the ocean was actually electrolysis, and so on and so forth. So that is not new, and um, uh, we've had uh, uh, Hindutva, Hindu nationalist literature down the ages that always tried to, uh, you know, um, negotiate this, uh, this space between traditional understanding and uh, scientific truths, right? But what I find interesting about Hindutva 2.0 is that it is what I call advertised that is you don't this is uh, this is an ecology where you don't have to complete a story that is you know completing a story means uh, you let, let let us say that uh, 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 you know you declare that I believe that the events depicted in the Ramayana took place in 7000 BC. Uh, completing a story means you back it up with archaeological evidence, historical evidence, answer questions by existent uh, you know, experts, and come up with a cogent, well-rounded, uh, consistent argument uh, that would establish your thesis. So that is uh, the classic modern form of discourse. But advertised modernization uh, 
Hindutva as Hindutva 2.0 as advertised modernization is something different where you don't have to uh, narrativize propositions. You don't have to, uh, you don't have a narrative obligation. You can just say it. So here I make a distinction between uh, what is narrated and what is advertised. Narration means you have to have a story. And it has to be a wholesome story. It has to have a proper beginning, proper middle, and proper end. And it has to be uh, convincing. And it you have to uh, sort of make it, uh, you have to substantiate it, etc., etc. And there's a lot of other conditions. Advertised, the advertised form is a form that I think is increasingly important to understand our current moment. In the advertised form, you don't have any obligation to narrate, right? So, I mean, think about it. Uh, you, ha- you see an ad in, uh, on TV which says that if you drink a particular brand of uh, cola, let's say, if you drink a particular brand of cola, uh, you know, your professional success rate will improve or your love life will improve uh, or things like that, right? So, if you think about it, there is no logic, logical connection between the two, right? Uh, there is no logical connection between, let's say, a Cadbury, Cadbury chocolate bar and cricket. But it's there, it's put together to just give you a feel-good uh, sensation that you can take back home. Uh, take home, as advertisers call it. And Hindutva 2.0 uh, publicity fall for sort of for is increasingly following the same pattern that is uh, it is no longer reliant on what you would call truth right it is uh, it's it works through you know uh, uh, through distributions it works through pulsations. That is, it works through memes. It works through um, uh, images that are instantly uh, disposable and instantly disposable. Right? So it's uh, after a point, it is perhaps pointless to make, uh, you know, challenge that by saying, look, you are uh, you're talking about uh, great achievements of this present government but the the picture of the I don't know, uh, the bridge that you have used is not in India, it's in Portugal or somewhere else or you know, what you're saying there is not simply not true Uh, the point is not that the point is to uh, inundate uh, a certain you know uh, certain ecology, informational ecology, with uh, these particularized, parcelized images and associations and create a kind of a Hindu upper caste uh, male electronic common sense, right? So at the end of the day, uh, I think what does it... Particular assertions no longer matter. What matters is a kind of a uh, Hindu feeling, urban Hindu upper caste feeling that has been generalized. And that is what um, is uh, what I find interesting. Secondly, in social terms, uh, we all of us, you know, um, a lot of us have been talking about uh, the BJP. Uh, IT cell culture or the WhatsApp universities <laughs> as it is uh, normally referred to. But this is also a kind of a moment where uh, political Hindutva is, to, you know, to a certain extent realizing its dreams uh, of the decades. That is, to have a kind of a congregation, even if it is a virtual congregation, that rises above, uh, you know, uh, actual realities of discrimination. So, in other words, what I'm saying is, I, I find this recent phenomenon interesting, whereby uh, caste Hindu groups who can otherwise not 
eat or drink water at each other's place, can't sit together, can WhatsApp together, right? So you, what you create is a virtual congregation. And, uh, well, you know, uh, now where all these things will uh, lead to how they will be negotiated by, uh, you know, by a very immense India, uh, India that is full of surprises and, uh, you know, pluralities, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, as I write in the book, I, I didn't write the book to read the present. Reading the present is the most difficult thing. Uh, I just try to understand the ground of the present. Uh, I think I'll uh, leave it at that. Thank you, Professor. You have given the audience a lot of food for thought. And as we arrive at the end of the podcast, I would like to ask you, how would you define the relevance of the book, Hindutva as Political Monotheism, in the present times? Well, I think, uh, you know, it is uh, a matter of uh, introspection for uh, all of us. I think uh, what the book tries to do is actually uh, ask um, all parties, in a certain sense, uh, to, uh, to introspect. And uh, in other words... Uh, well, it does, you know, expose, it tries to expose the uh, historical project of Hindu nationalism, you know, right-wing Hindu nationalism, which I sincerely feel is disastrous for the idea of India. But that's, you know, that's what I feel. But uh, uh, hopefully, you know, it, it, it will sort of uh, float some questions uh, that, uh, you know, people who call themselves Hindu in general uh, can also ask and uh, ponder over. And I think it's already happening, not just because of my book, but uh, in other words, you know, that uh, more and more people are realizing that the kind of narrow, insular, jealous Hindu experience that uh, the Hindu right is uh, offering as the only template of Hindu existence is a very narrow one that uh, I think many people who are denominationally Hindu are are noticing. Uh, and uh, I think, I, I hope, you know, this book will be a, a small contribution in an uh, overall project that I think, I deeply feel is necessary uh, in what is called the left liberal um, uh, sections, um, we, you know, uh, I think people who want to uh, address this very urgent question of uh, Hindutva need to think of a political vernacular of their. Uh, of their own, a new political vernacular that can re-energize, uh, you know, secular, left, and liberal discourses. Uh, I don't, obviously, I don't have an answer insofar as uh, how exactly that uh, that can happen. But I think the quest is something uh, that uh, well-meaning people. Um, in the academy, outside the academy, uh, need to participate in. Thank you. Absolutely. There is no growth and development without introspection. Well, thank you so much for answering these questions, which are only a few among the many that our audience still wants to know. Professor Basu, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I must ask you, what are you working on now? Uh, I am... Uh... I am in the process of uh, finishing a, a book on uh, Nehruvian cinema, which is, uh, you know, roughly the the cinema that was made after the second plan uh, and 1962. So this, you know, very short period. Uh, 
so Nehruvian cinema, uh, there's a section on Bengal, there's a, there's a section on Bombay, what used to be called the Bombay Presidency that time, uh, Bombay State. And uh, there's a section on Bengal. So that is, uh, in other words, broadly speaking, I'm interested in that area because uh, that was when a, a new India was cinematically imagined, right? Uh, it was a, almost a utopian in India, uh, that that was projected on 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 on, uh, on screens, and uh, I would like to critically revisit that. And I'm also have just started a wo- work on a book on uh, secularism, which I hope to write in the next couple of years. Indian secularism. That sounds like great projects, Professor. I'm sure everyone uh, is waiting for both the books. I want to thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. Also, thanking the audience for constantly supporting us. Keep reading, keep listening, keep enjoying. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.